0: This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the August 26th edition of the Tennessee. World Affairs Council's Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan. Today, Ambassador Dick Bowers, Dr. Breck Walker, and I will present top items in global current events and give you analysis and commentary. No fake news, no spin. Uh, Dick, Breck, good, uh, good to see you in our, our new time slot here.
1: Yeah, good to be back. Hello, everybody. Great, Great to be here.
0: We had a, a two-week hiatus. Uh, uh, did you guys make good use of that time? Uh, Dick, did you, did you make your trip to Antarctica? Was that, uh, your...
1: your no, but your I got killed by Breck for an hour on a variety <laughs> of International Business Fellows there. That was a good gig.
0: And, and, Breck, uh, you, you get out of the house? You, you, uh, have any summer, summer vacation stories?
2: Well, not really. I was down in Florida with my, uh, son for a couple of weeks. My adult son, so you don't get to do that too often. And we remain friends throughout the whole time, so... It's a successful trip.
0: Terrific. Well, let's uh, let's fill people in on the, what we got coming up um, on our uh, our webinar schedule. We got the, uh, quite a busy schedule for the fall. Uh, we are presenting an election twenty twenty series, which will uh, help hopefully inform voters on the uh, the top issues in global affairs that they should know about. And here's uh, some of what we uh, will be presenting. We'll also be doing uh, watch parties. On the evening of the Belmont presidential debate hosting at Belmont University here in Nashville, uh, they will be hosting the third presidential debate on October 22nd, and our program uh, Belmont is our partner and host, so our program is uh, in concert with uh, with that event, and we'll have a, a host uh, host a watch party on October 22nd, and then November 3rd we'll have another watch party for the election. Uh, so. Uh, Be on the lookout for those things on our calendar. Also coming up on September 2nd and 3rd, uh, the uh, World Affairs Council will be uh, co-hosting along with uh, six other World Affairs Council uh, a major presentation on COVID-19, a global town hall uh, in cooperation with Radio Free Europe, uh, journalists from around the world, uh, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, the uh, uh, head of, uh, he, he was consultant to, the Obama administration on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, He'll be a keynote speaker, and we've got journalists from China, Russia, uh, Iran, and elsewhere around the world joining us, as well as public health uh, professionals. So take a look at uh, that on our uh, website as well. And uh, lastly, uh, let me remind everybody that we, uh, uh, the Tennessee World Affairs Council is a nonprofit organization. Uh, We invite you to uh, join as a member or to make a gift to continue uh, these programs are being made available uh, to you. Pat,
1: can I can I jump in for a second and, and say last night's program that you uh, moderated with former Secretary of Defense Perry yep. and Plousher's, it was outstanding. And I would well, thank urge you very people much to go to uh, the website, right? Which you can then watch it in, I guess it's in YouTube or where is it?
0: We have a we have a channel on YouTube. It's youtube.com slash TNWAC. And for those who are podcast uh, listeners, we have a podcast channel on SoundCloud.com/tnwac slash or wherever mm-hmm. you get wherever you get your podcast. It's uh, listed as Global Tenancy. Uh, if you uh, subscribe uh, so to the Global Tenancy podcast,
1: on the whole nuclear business and who has the finger on what. So yeah, they button, they right? were
0: they had uh, it was former Defense Secretary William Perry and uh, Tom Kalina from the Plowshares Fund, which is a leading uh, organization uh, dealing with uh, nuclear proliferation. Uh, the two of them uh, co-wrote a book called The Button, which talks uh, primarily about the fact that uh, presidents, and not just this one, but uh, through history, have been the sole authority to release nuclear weapons. So it was a, a terrific uh, webinar. Um, I really enjoyed being part of it. And Dick, thanks for, uh, for mentioning Sobering that. is the
1: word I would use.
0: So um yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, sorry for the interruption. No, no, no. Secretary Perry talked about uh, an incident where he got called at three o'clock in the morning, was told two hundred Russian ICBMs had been launched against the United States, and it turned out to be a computer glitch. So, so uh, yeah, as you uh, as you mentioned, uh, quite uh, quite sobering. Well, uh, let's uh, jump into uh, our weekly quiz. Uh, question, and uh, we'll turn to uh, uh, Dr. Breck Walker for that, Um, and we will uh, get that up on the screen here.
2: Thanks, Pat. Again, this question is taken from our weekly quiz that you can access on the uh, Tennessee World Affairs Council website, and we give a monthly prize for the series of four quizzes that take place during the month, so uh, please go to that and participate if you have an interest. Anyway, today's question is, a German air ambulance evacuated this gravely ill activist and political opponent, a Russian president, Vladimir Putin, to Berlin after he was stricken on a flight to Moscow. His aides claim he was poisoned before boarding the plane, a claim verified by German doctors. He has been active in exposing corruption among high level individuals and in an organizing protests. Who is this person? And the possibilities are A, Yaka Bazilj. B, Alexei Nalvani. C, Kira Yarmish, And D, Piotr Verzilov. And we'll have the answer at the end of the program today.
0: Perfect, well done. Um, and uh, Dick, we're, we're going to uh, ask you, if uh, you would, uh, tell uh, tell everybody what we are going to be uh, looking at today.
1: Well, we've got basically three big topics today. And the first one is the race for COVID-19 global vaccine. So, you know, are we going to be part of a team effort or are we going to be doing it alone? What's going on in there? Second, Belarus stuck between Poland and Russia. And they're having some real issues. Post-election revolt is going on. Well, the guy who's ruled since they broke away from the Soviet Union a quarter century ago still be in power? And finally, the United Arab Emirates and Israel normalized relations. Big deal in the Middle East.
0: Uh, for sure, for sure. Okay, well, let's uh, jump right into uh, our topic. Uh, actually, uh, excuse me, we... Uh, uh, we're in a new format here. Uh, we've uh, dropped from five to three topics, but we do want to uh, review some uh, some news items uh, just to uh, to give you some headlines of important things uh, going on in the world. And um, those are... Dick, you want to start us off? Well, the
1: first, the first kind of headline is uh, Russia's arsenal of exotic poisons. Uh, Russia's basically appears to have been using poisons to get rid of people it doesn't want. Second one, polishing the gun, China-US tensions rise, Taiwan conflict fears. So there's a lot going on in the South China Sea again. And finally, a row between Turkey and Greece uh, over basically gas exploration in the Eastern Mediterranean. And what's happening is that the European powers are backing the Greeks mostly to the exclusion of the Turks, and there's tension over that.
0: And uh, I'll, I'll finish this up You've got here. Some we, too, Pat. Yeah, we got uh, Iran uh, has agreed to let nuclear inspectors visit uh, key sites. Uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency is concerned about Iran uh, enriching uranium and uh, reconstituting a nuclear weapons program, so that's uh, something to watch. BBC is reporting on that. Uh, Kim Jong-un, the Supreme Leader in North Korea, um, he uh, appears well and in charge and is talking about coronavirus and other things. Uh, And uh, in in the Middle East, uh, the United Nations has said that over 10,000 Islamic State fighters uh, are active in Iraq and Syria. Uh, So these are stories that uh, we wanna mention to you and uh, they they should probably be among the the items that uh, you're reading as you keep up with uh with current events. Okay, um, gentlemen, we're going to jump right in here with uh our first uh, deep dive topic and that would be the uh the COVID-19 uh vaccine uh, race. Brekduga, do you, uh, you want to start us off? I'd I'd be happy to. I'll give a couple of
2: minutes of an overview of what's uh going on right now and uh, then we can all uh kick it around a little bit. Um it's, I guess, increasingly obvious that the only solution to this pandemic is going to be the development of a vaccine. And there are a large number of vaccines uh, in development right now, as everyone knows. The, the WHO, the World Health Organization, uh, says that right now there are over 400 vaccine and treatment research programs under study worldwide, and uh, there are over 135 in pre clinical trials, which means they're not testing humans yet, but uh, that's coming. And there are 32, according to the WHO, there are 32 vaccines that are in human trials right now. And uh, there are two that have uh, been approved in their own countries for limited use, and that's one in China and one in Russia. Uh, So... There is an increasing focus now that a vaccine is going to be developed uh, and we need to figure out the, uh, the most effective ways to test their safety, to produce billions of doses in the shortest possible time, and then to figure out how best to distribute those vaccines uh, on a worldwide basis. And I think that uh, most experts out there are also suggesting that for the vast majority of the world's population, Uh, moving as reasonably fast as we can, Uh, we are still several months uh, away, in the best case, from having a vaccine available to much of the world. And uh, on the distribution side, there's some interesting things that are happening, and I think that's what we wanted to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about today. And the overview uh, is this. There seems to be sort of a free-for-all competition, competition emerging, among the uh, wealthier, more economically developed uh, countries who are moving to secure vaccine supplies for their populations, which will leave the the less wealthy countries and perhaps in those countries, especially the more higher risk populations like healthcare workers and the elderly, those folks will be at the end of the line the way things seem to be developing right now. And that is what happened a little bit With the H1N1 vaccine back in 2009, uh, to some degree, and certainly in the early going, only the developed countries really got uh, adequate access to the vaccine. And uh, we may be uh, heading that direction, at least in the early going a little bit here when vaccines become uh, available. Now, uh, most of the leading vaccines are gonna be produced in the United States, in Europe, in India, and maybe in China. And certainly those countries that produce the vaccine, as well as those who can afford to buy it at large scale, are gonna have an advantage in gaining access uh, to supplies. And most of those, most Western governments, and I'd include uh, Japan in that, are busy buying up doses, uh, prospective doses, doses to be produced in the future. They're busy buying up doses for their own uh, populations. Um, And the United States is certainly trying to take a very leading position in this competition. Uh, The United States government has funded uh, significantly research behind several leading vaccine candidates. We have purchased prospectively 800 million doses of six vaccines in advance. And President Trump, I mean, this is an America first strategy. President Trump is, uh, one analogy he used is that we are like the airplane passenger securing their oxygen mask we need to get an o- oxygen mask on and get our own selves under, uh, under control before helping others. And uh, that seems to be the US strategy going forward. Now, this American first approach is Rick, a different approach. Rick, I, I,
0: think, I think that quote was that uh, the people in the first class section are going to get the masks. And <laughs> <laughs> Well, that yeah, I think that was a response
2: to uh, his quote. Good point. Yeah. Um, but this America first approach is a little bit different than the, or quite a bit different than the approach the U.S. has used in the past, when during previous pandemics, and I'm thinking of uh, Ebola, AIDS, HIV, malaria, the U.S. has generally played a leading role in galvanizing an international response. Now, this time's a little bit different because U.S. citizens are directly at risk for the first time. Uh, but the United, as everybody knows, the U.S. has announced plans to withdraw from the WHO, uh, we have bought up a, uh, a lot of the world's uh, supply of uh, remdesivir. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but the drug that supposedly has some uh, remdesivir. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Some ameliorating uh, uh, effects on the virus, and uh, and and we're going about trying to su- su- to secure vaccine supplies for our entire population. And similar actions are being taken in. Uh, Europe and in Japan who are together securing hundreds of millions of doses prospectively for uh, their population. Um, Now there is uh, uh, an alternative to this kind of distribution where every country's out for himself and uh, that is something that right now is uh, organized and being called the COVAX Initiative which is led by the WHO and a coalition of international health organizations, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And the idea there, uh, broadly speaking, is to have uh, other countries, other nations, contribute money to this coalition, who in turn will identify uh, the most promising vaccines and direct money to those vaccines, and then also be uh, in charge of distributing the most successful vaccines in a manner that is based more on need than it is on wealth of the country. And uh, uh, so far that coalition has raised about $3 billion. They hope to raise as much as $34 billion and it's been very slow going. They haven't raised nearly enough to, uh, to uh, engage in this distribution project like they uh, want to. And uh, so there's two competing ideas of distribution out there. One is uh, every country for itself, and certainly there is a political reality driving that as well. Uh, And the other is, uh, should we organize on a multilateral and international basis and uh, try and be smarter about uh, the distribution of whatever vaccines are developed in ways that will ultimately save lives and put a damper on uh, hotspots that may arise and so forth?
0: Well, that's a, a great overview, uh, Breck. You, you've covered the landscape very well there. I, I think uh, the, the news peg for this in the last uh, couple of days uh, were reports uh, that the Chinese government has begun experimental uh, tests of vaccine in high-risk groups. And uh, obviously, the United States is anxious to, uh, to get uh, a vaccine in production. Uh, there have been some statements um, this week uh, in, in connection with the uh, Republican National Convention, about the uh, the prospects for, for vaccines here, uh, but uh, you know, I, I think it's uh, concerning to many of us the uh, the fact that uh, when a, an effective and safe vaccine is developed, it's not going to be uh, in enough uh, doses to cover to cover the world, and there will be a fierce competition. And as you mentioned, the richer nations are, are definitely uh, leveraging themselves to, to be po- in position to to grab those things. <clears throat> I think. So, on your,
1: uh, go ahead, Dick. Well, i was just saying that's something over 170 countries have kind of signed up already, haven't they, for the Covax pro- program? And uh, China has not, and the United States has not.
0: Right. So, yeah. Uh, so that, that would suggest that we're not in the sharing business.
1: Uh,
2: well, you know, Jared uh, Kushner, who is the point guy at the White House for uh, uh, our COVID-19 response, our governmental COVID-19 response, uh, argues that this multilateral effort, the the COVAX alliance, as I'd call it, is really a competitor in the race for the vaccine in terms of American citizens. And I think it's an interesting Philosophical be utilitarian here and... And try and save the most number of lives we can worldwide, or uh, uh, is this something that the majority ought to rule within the country? And the polling that has been done suggests that two-thirds of, American th- two-thirds of Americans think that, that vaccines produced in this country should first and foremost be used in this country, and only after everyone has one here should they be exported. So uh, again, it raises some really interesting philosophical questions. I think about democracy right, versus. Side of, uh,
1: side of this wreck is, is the you know we have the the vax deniers, the people that won't even well, believe yeah. that you know the <laughs> measles <laughs> shot is worth getting. And so the question of even if we have it, how many people out there are not going to be willing to have the vaccination? Well, what there. Does that there's, mean for our there's,
0: there's there's probably 150 million doses that won't get uh, claimed. Uh, that, that's certainly uh, an issue, but I, I think the larger question, if the uh, if the safe and effective vaccine is developed somewhere else, and and they uh, take the the view of the United States, we may be left out. You know, China is in
1: well. That's true. And there are
0: China. the Russians are already uh, testing people with a vaccine. Uh, although a lot of people have their doubts as to whether it's safe and effective. I think uh, Dr. Fauci uh, threw some shade on the Russian vaccine. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's it's an important question here about uh, sharing. I think this COVAX coalition is a, an interesting concept, and it is remarkable that only China and the United States are not signed
1: up. Well it's gonna flush out to a certain degree, uh, what kind of people are we? What are our eth- ethical values of the people of the United States of America? It's my way or the highway and hell with you, and I'm gonna get mine and you know block ourselves off, or are we saying, you know, kinda, of, yeah, we are all in this together and we let's figure out a rational way to use a product that we don't have enough for everybody to start out with. So we right. take care of healthcare workers, we take care of the most vulnerable. How do we do this? So to be an interesting time.
2: Well, China has certainly announced that if they're the ones to develop a vaccine that is effective, that they will treat that as a so-called public good uh, and will share it uh, with the world. But there's certainly a lot of commentators out there that think that that means China might share their vaccine with those uh, where it would give China some geopolitical advantage and take it away from their own population, uh, weighing those kinds of costs and benefits. But uh, there's a lot of interesting uh, balancing uh,
0: questions that have to be raised. Okay. Anything else, Dick?
1: Nope. All right. I'm ready to get my shot so so I can get out and do things.
0: Pressing on. uh, Belarus, uh, the color of the Belarus revolution. I don't think we have a color yet. uh, Breck, but uh, you were mentioning that the 2016 protest, it wasn't quite a revolution, uh, had had uh, uh, the name uh, denim or uh, the jeans revolution.
1: James, yeah. Yeah.
0: Because well,
1: so, the, the protesters were basically young and were in that kind of attire. But yeah. I'll throw one out. If the, if the thugs from the Lukashenko uh, government keep beating up people, maybe it'll be the black and blue revolution. <laughs>
0: uh yes uh, w- well let's let's get into it and, and and see uh see where that comment originates from um we uh we are watching closely the developments in Belarus after an election that was held presidential election on August 9th in which uh president alexander Lukashenko, who has held uh, power in uh, the this former soviet republic uh for most of its 30 years of independence since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, Belarus was one of the republics in, in the Soviet Union. And uh, the election was widely claimed uh, to be um, not just irregular, but a, an absolute sham in, in that uh, Lukashenko uh, reportedly claimed 80% of the votes. Um, uh, Dick, uh, you, you want to mention the opposition leader, uh,
1: <laughs> yeah. Svetlana. Right. yeah, you just call her Svetlana. No, Tikhanovskaya. She yeah. is the, she is a school teaching lady uh, who is the wife of a vlogger, which I learned recently is someone who blogs visually, right? Videos. And, and she was the candidate. And Lukashenko, the dictator president, shut him down and put him in jail. And so she basically stepped in. To try to run, and a lot of folks say she won the election, but of course, Lukashenko was not given up. So there's Svetlana Tihanovskaya and Alexander Lukashenko.
0: So, so the result was uh, originally a peaceful protest uh, calling for Lukashenko's uh, uh, resignation, and you can see the, uh, the the two different flags there. The one in the back, the red and green is the current Belarus flag. And if you've been following this uh, in the news, you may have seen seas of these uh, uh, white, red, white striped flags. This is a, a former uh, Belarusian uh, flag, which, uh, Dick, I think may even predate uh, the Soviet Union, because they probably had so, yeah. some, some variation of...
1: Uh, well, Belarus and Lithuania were, were linked at one point in time, as was Lithuania and Poland and Belarus's... Has gone back and forth as to you know who who owns it and where is it and what's going on and so the the key here is that Russia Poland Ukraine uh, these are all Slavic peoples and their languages are somewhat uh, mutually understandable among themselves but Belarus emerged after the the Soviet Revolution in 1917 as an independent republic and joined the Soviet Union, as did the Ukraine. And, and, and interestingly enough, in the United Nations, Belarus was a, a member, founding member of the United Nations. And as such, it got a vote. So in the UN and the General Assembly, uh, the Rus- Russia, Belarus, and the Ukraine all had votes. And that was kind of a bone of contention for some in the West, just the, why should the Soviet Union have three of its constituent parts each voting and others not but anyway it's kind of like
0: Florida and Texas having a vote
1: <laughs> uh, yeah I'd give it to California for, <laughs> before I'd give it to Texas but that's okay
0: so, so uh, yeah I, I think uh, uh, the the gist of this is that uh, people in in the in uh, Belarus said uh, enough is enough. Uh, this election was a sham and we're not going to have any of it. So there were protests that were violently put down by uh, Lukashenko uh, and uh, his uh, security forces. Uh, some believe that the, the you know, this the so-called reign of terror unleashed uh, by Lukashenko served two purposes. One was to intimidate the, uh, the, the demonstrators and the prisoners. Uh, they, they took um uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of, uh, of civilian protesters put, and put them in prisons and the reports that uh, they were forced to kneel with their hands behind their backs for hours in, in overcrowded cells. Uh, men and women were stripped, beaten, and raped with truncheons. Uh, so it, it's uh, been widely called a, a reign of terror, but uh, it was uh, thought to be in part so that the security forces would uh, remain loyal out of fear that they could eventually be be called to account for their behavior.
1: Well, that's uh, that's kind of an old dictator's uh, strongman thug-like tactic. You take your security guys and you you make them do things together that are you know horrible, like torturing people, and that basically bonds them together. So it becomes those guys against the other folks. My understanding is that the protesters are still trying very hard to be nonviolent, but they're being met with extreme violence from uh, the security forces of, of Lukashenko.
0: Yeah, there, there was a, a crowd that was heading to the prisons and uh, about 200 uh, of the demonstrators formed a line and held back the protesters. They didn't want uh, uh, the protest to turn to violence and, and rationalize. Uh, what uh, was being done to the uh, the protesters?
1: Well, that, that particular one, Pat. I think there were a lot of reports of, of uh, snipers on the roof, and they were going to be ready to start taking people out if it got to or, to the point where it looked like they would storm the prison and be able to let people go. So, it's it's give and take, and it, you know what what goes on there is uh, watched very closely by your friend Vladimir Vladimir Putin.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so think, uh, Tikunovskaya is in Lithuania, and she's, she's sort of the uh, symbol of this, but it's, uh, as, as you mentioned, it's not just contained within um, Belarus that uh, Russia has very close eyes on it. You can see on the map the, uh, that Russia is a, a neighbor to Belarus, as, as you mentioned, uh, Dick, and squished between Ukraine, Poland, the, uh, the Baltic states. And uh, for people who were wondering about that little uh, piece that says Russia there on the Baltic Sea, that's Kaliningrad, which is uh, technically <laughs> part of the Russian Republic. It just is a, uh, what's the political science? Uh, not, a, not a rump state.
1: A. Uh,
0: no, it's, uh, it's, it's part of Russia.
1: Yeah. But it was is, German. It was, you know, Königsberg was the German name for yeah,
0: it. it. It's now Kaliningrad, part of Russia. So Belarus neighbors Russia. And and Dick, you mentioned Vladimir Putin has got his eyes on uh, what's going on there.
1: Well, I think he would be, um, what goes on in Belarus, if if a more or less peaceful demonstration over a period of time is able to bring down an authoritarian government, that sends a message that Vladimir Putin doesn't want the Russian people to have. Yeah. Because it might start a process where people in Russia start thinking like Mr. Naval, oops, like the guy who got poisoned by <laughs> the, the Russians. Um, they may they may start thinking, hey, you know, we've got this corrupt thing going on here and we want to demonstrate. And uh, I don't think Mr. Putin would like to have any of that happen. Hey, and yeah.
2: Pat, if I could add a couple things on that too, the... Uh, uh, w- One thing, that, or two things that make this situation, I think, interesting is uh, one, uh, by all appearances, uh, the Belarusians uh, want to maintain close relationships with Russia. There's been some polling done in the last couple of months and there's a solid uh, majority that does not want to turn to the West. Uh, And uh, two, Putin himself, there was a lot of public support when he went in, a lot of Russian public support when he went into Crimea. But there is not much Russian support for him sending the little green man, much less Russian troops, into Belarus because uh, the Belarusians are not Russian. Uh, Russian ethnicity, I was reading, they're about 80% of the population of Belarus of actual uh, Russian ethnicity and 83% identify as Belarusian. Uh, So it's, it's a different situation and it'll be interesting to see what Putin does. He certainly warned, Uh, the EU and the United States for that matter from directly interfering, but he has not yet, to my knowledge, come out and given uh, uh, Lukashenko any direct support. Uh, He hasn't stated publicly that he wants him to stay in power and and those kinds of things. So it'll be interesting to see how this develops.
0: Yeah, there was a report a couple of weeks ago that uh, Lukashenko uh, threw in jail about 30 guys who had come across the border from Russia and they, uh, they were claimed, uh, the Belarus authorities claimed that they were Russian special operators uh, who were sent in to uh, disrupt the election and that there's bad blood between Lukashenko and Putin. Uh, but clearly, uh, Putin doesn't want to see the West uh, gain any advantage uh, in Belarus or demonstrators be successful, as, as you said, <laughs> the Dick. So this is going to be interesting to watch. The, the EU has... Um, uh, indicated that they might sanction Belarus, but they really have no, no taste to get uh, further involved in the, in what's going well, on. I right. think I,
1: th- I think some of the EU leaders are saying you know basically Belarussia or Belarus is is not European. It's kind of off there, almost on the way to Asia. It's not part of the European Union or market, and has no intention of becoming that. But it's got a historic uh, connection to the West with Poland and Lithuania much more than with Russia. So um, I think you're right, Breck, that there is no kind of ethnic minority in Belarus that's saying we want to become part of Mother Russia.
2: One other thing that, uh, just putting on my optimist hat for a minute, uh, uh, (laughs) I'm thinking that there there might be an opportunity here for Russia, for Putin and the European leaders to actually work this out in a way that uh, Uh, in a small way gets rid of the bad taste about what's going on in Crimea and Ukraine because I think that uh, if they could, and and the opposition, by the way, led by Svetlana, and I'll leave it at that, but uh, uh, the opposition has publicly expressed their desire to stay in the, uh, I think it's called the Eurasian Economic Union, and to maintain close relationships with Russia and so forth. So there might be an opportunity here for the right outcome because the West would be for more democracy. But if they truly stand back and don't try and uh, and shift be- Belarus's um, here, that would be uh, that would be workable for all from all sides.
0: Yeah. Um, well, now we know who gets to wear the uh, the hat of optimism. We'll, we'll have to get. That.
1: <laughs> so I've been up there, right next to that border, both when I was uh, in Lithuania uh, and, and in Poland, There's an interesting town called Białystok. And uh, it it plays in the Polish language because if you say I'm going to to Białystok, it's Białystokiego, and it kind of the verbs get all messed up. But it's it's an interesting place. Lots of forest land, some lakes in the area. It's it's really pretty right near the Belarus, Poland, Lithuanian comes together. It's a it's a lovely place.
0: Well, hopefully uh, we'll get to go visit. And one does, of these does days. Belarus?
2: White Russia. Hey Dick, I was wondering if uh, Belarus. Does that doesn't that, doesn't that mean White Russia?
1: It does, and there are a lot of different reasons. One, uh, uh, there's confusion. It had nothing to do with the uh, revolution in 1917 with the Red Army and the White Army. That that was separate kind of kind of cash. Um, so if you if you go to Wikipedia, I think you can get four or five different. Uh, reasons for why it's white Russia, but most people, I think, uh, believe that it's because of the particular ethnic group that the Belarusians are, and they were called the white Russians rather than the other Russians or something. Mm. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of interesting stuff there.
0: Well, let's turn the page from uh, conflict and revolt to Something more optimistic. Breck, you, you will probably like, uh, <laughs> like this topic. We're going to talk about the uh, Abraham Accord and the um, effort to uh, normalize relations between Israel and Arab countries. And the announcement recently that uh, in the White House, as, as you can see there, it was a very uh, highly publicized event, that uh, the United States announced a breakthrough in uh, conversations between Arab countries and Israel with the uh, agreement between the United Arab Emirates, the UAE and Israel to restore uh, or to normalize relations. I suppose they never really had a relationship after the, uh, uh, the founding of the state of Israel and the declaration of independence in the, the UAE which is uh, a much newer nation, uh, having been a British colony, the Trucial States in, in the Persian Gulf um, Breck, did you want to uh, talk a little bit about what uh, what occurred in the Abraham Accord?
2: Sure. Uh, uh, I guess simply put, uh, the UAE and uh, Israel, with some help from the United States, uh, agreed to normalize relations with one another. Uh, and that would be, the UAE would be the, as I understand it, the third Arab nation to uh, will be the third arab nation to have normal relations with uh, diplomatic relations and uh, economic relations uh, and travel relations uh with israel the other two being egypt and uh and jordan and uh the at least as the emirati government portrayed it the quid pro quo for uh doing that from the emirati standpoint was that Israel's and uh, Netanyahu's plans to uh, formally annex about 30% of the West Bank uh, have been put on hold, or uh, uh, the Emirati government says that they stopped it, and that now there's a great opportunity to enter in, for Israel to enter into negotiations with the Palestinians, and this is the step that uh, caused Israel to pull back a little bit, and we'll see what happens from there. But. Uh, uh, I think that uh, other, now the Palestinians, of course, recalled their ambassador from Abu Dhabi and uh, had uh, very critical things to say about this—that it was abandoning the Palestinian people uh, and so forth. And uh, other uh, another country that was very uh, critical of it, of course, was Iran and uh, Turkey. Uh, interestingly, but uh, uh, that in big picture, that's what's happened.
0: Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting because when uh, Egypt and Jordan um, normalized their relationship, uh, famously Egypt at the Camp David Accords in 1979, uh, Egypt was was seen as kind of a pariah in the uh, the Arab League uh, for having done so, and and they did strictly uh, for for domestic uh, economic reasons. The United States uh, is still paying them. Uh, for having signed that agreement, the uh, in international aid. Uh, Jordan came along sometime afterwards, but there was still a lot of pushback in the Arab world. Uh, and it took a long time for Egypt to get normalized in the, uh, the League of Arab Nations. Uh, and a there of, are, A lot of
1: money went to Egypt to make that happen, Pat, and, and, it's, it, still, and it's still going.
0: It's still going, yeah. From the United and, States. And, then and billions. Just, just, just a side note, people uh, look at uh, the humanitarian situation in Egypt and, and say, you know, how, how could we be paying the money when they're doing the things they're doing? But uh, that stems back to the, uh, the Camp David Accords. Uh, I, I think it's interesting. You talked about reaction from uh, Iran and uh, Turkey, uh, Breck, but uh, we've also seen some reaction from Saudi Arabia, which uh, is seen as kind of the big kid on the block there uh, in, in the neighborhood. Uh, I, I think one thing of interest uh, as far as UAE, the UAE was not at a state of, of war with uh, Israel as some other nations were, Egypt, Syria, and so forth. So, um, you know, we, we've, we've kind of seen this coming for a while, the, uh, the joint interest between Arab Gulf states and Israel in dealing with Iran, and we'll talk more about Iran as we get deeper into this. But uh, Saudi Arabia... Um, which would be a major breakthrough in, uh, in normalizing the relationship with, uh, with Israel. If, if Saudi Arabia got on board, uh, the rest of uh, the Arab League uh, would uh, presumably uh, follow pretty quickly. Uh, but uh, Prince Turkey al-Faisal, who uh, was the uh, Saudi uh, ambassador to the United States some years ago, and for decades, he was the director of uh, intelligence in Saudi Arabia, and is often seen as uh, an unofficial spokesman for Saudi uh, royalty uh, positions. He said that uh, Saudi Arabia was not ready to normalize relations with Israel. Um, King Abdullah in 2001 floated an Arab peace plan, which was codified by the Arab League in the Beirut summit uh, that year, and, and again, reaffirmed over the years as being the Arab League's position uh, on their relations with Israel. And that called for normalization only after Israel returned to the 67 borders. And you know, if you look at facts on the ground and, and the, uh, the settlements that are in place and increasing settlements and uh, the position on the, uh, East Jerusalem, that's not gonna happen. Uh, so for now, Saudi Arabia is taking that position which uh, basically signifies they're not ready to come along anytime soon in, in this normalization game. There may be, uh, Israel and the United States may pick off uh, one or two other countries uh, in the process. Uh, One thing I found that was interesting is that uh, Qatar, which is still at odds with uh, some of its Gulf neighbors, uh, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, uh, Bahrain, uh, as well as Jordan, uh, and I believe Egypt, um, Qatar at one time had a, uh, economic Interest Office of the State of Israel, and that became a contentious issue And Israel. Um, I think during the Second Intifada, had to close the office. But it was curious that that Israel did have a an official government presence in a, a Gulf state back uh, some time ago. So, um, Dick, you know, you, you uh, you're the master of uh, diplomacy. What, what what's your what's your impression of uh, um, of, of you know what the State Department and uh, Jared Kushner is uh, is accomplishing here with these Middle East moves. You know he announced earlier. Well, I, you, earlier know, I,
1: I, I, you know success has a thousand fathers, right? Failure is an orphan. Uh, I think the, you know this was not the United States making this deal. This was the UAE looking at its interests and what it can do. And and you know there's something that has become known as the Dubai model, if you will. I mean, it's uh, good governance and a vibrant economy and a religious tolerance. And they are hitting well above their weight in their influence and capabilities of influencing activities in the region. Um, You know, interesting, enough that, but I think they have about 10 million people, about the same size as Belarus in terms of population, but they are much more pragmatic governing body. And Mohammed bin Saeed is uh, a guy that really has taken the UAE and made it a, a, a very nice place to live and work. So mm-hmm. the, I don't know. I don't see other states jumping on the bandwagon right now. Uh, part of the deal is going to be, you know, what, what the difference is between how the Saudis are viewing Iran and how the UAE is viewing Iran. The UAE were part of the Saudi armed force that went into Yemen and took on the Houthis, but they have left. So the Saudis are kind of on their own there and are probably yeah. getting ready to think about bailing as well. So I don't know, I'm over you guys. What do you think is gonna happen?
0: Well, you know, a couple of uh, pieces of, of this that we haven't mentioned yet is, is that the, the deal overall uh, definitely benefits Israel and uh, and Prime Minister Netanyahu, who remains in the clutches of this uh, corruption uh, investigation and accusations and and potential, uh, I think he's facing a court hearing, Uh, but he's been under fire at at, uh, home for these allegations. And and this definitely is uh, uh, a triumph for him in terms of boosting uh, his reputation. Uh, A side issue that emerged after the uh, agreement was that uh, the United States has been talking with the UAE about purchasing uh, F-35 fighters, advanced fighters that that normally uh, the United States would not sell to uh, an Arab state because we have an agreement with Israel, uh, something called the qualitative military uh, advantage uh, that we won't sell to an Arab state, a military system, that uh, would be superior or equal to something that uh, Israel uh, is fielding. Uh, and it seems that, I, don't, I can't imagine this was a surprise to the Israelis, but uh, once it was announced after the uh, Abraham Accord uh, was reached, uh, Israel, um, you know, shot up their hands and said, wait a minute, you can't do that. And uh, the, uh, the Trump administration is perfectly content with going ahead, so it looks like the F-35s are going to go to the UAE, and we'll see if there's some, um, you know, if if that puts some credit on the on the uh, ledger for for Israel from the United
1: States in, in exchange. Uh, Brett Hasn't did, the UAE done something with uh, with Greece about aircraft being trained on Crete or something like that? Uh, yeah. Which is kind uh, of unique?
0: You know we, we uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, uh, Greece and Turkey uh, Turkey is sending a, a, a vessel and we're getting a little off topic here but just uh, to fill in what what you uh, brought up dick uh, yeah. thanks thanks for taking us off off course here um, <laughs> there's 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 contention in the eastern Mediterranean over uh, gas uh, uh, deposits underwater uh, resources. And Turkey is uh, about to exploit those. And it's a, an area that is under contention with Cyprus, Greece, and, and Turkey. Um, a, a number of uh, Western allies are on the side of Greece and are warning Turkey not to do it. Uh, the UAE is on the side of uh, Greece and has sent uh, fighter planes to, uh, to Crete where they presumably will will pose uh, a deterrent uh, force to Turkey from doing anything. Uh, there was a collision between a Greek and Turkish ship. So uh, tensions are high there, and the UAE is, uh, is involved. The UAE has also been involved in uh, Libya, the, the civil war there. So UAE, like you said, is punching above its weight. It has been a long-term ally to the United States. We have uh, military uh, facilities uh, in uh, the UAE. Um, as, as you mentioned, it's, it's uh, uh, terrifically uh, advantaged by, uh, in Abu Dhabi, they, they uh, have major oil deposits. So they're, they're making money off oil. Dubai, which is another one of the seven uh, emirates within the UAE, is, is a major trading hub uh, for the Gulf. And yeah. now for the world, if you're going anywhere in that part of the world, Dubai is now the Atlanta of, uh, of the Persian Gulf. Uh, you got to go through Dubai to get anywhere. Um, uh, well, it's did, interesting
1: times, Pat. And now you know Israel's got a new foreign minister, yeah. uh, Mr. Foreign Minister Pompeo, who's out in the region <laughs> representing Israeli interest as much as he can. So we, we, we'll see what happens here. It's going to be. You got to... me off
0: guard with that one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Didn't I, I was meant to get you back on track here. Come on, no.
2: Hey, Pat, I wanted to say one more word about uh, Mohammed bin Zayed uh, yeah. that uh, Dick mentioned earlier. He's, uh, as Dick mentioned, he's the crown prince. It's his older brother that currently is president of the UAE. But, uh, but uh, MBZ, as they call him, the counterpoint to MBS in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, he is seemingly running the show there from a military standpoint, foreign policy standpoint, and so forth. Uh, Time magazine called him earlier this year, one of the most powerful men on earth. Uh, That's a quote. Uh, And so he is somebody that is responsible, I suspect for their aggressive uh, foreign policy. Sometimes their aggressive military action. He's very much an authoritarian. He's been in opposition to the Arab spring, for example, to most of the movements in the Arab spring, but curiously at the same time, uh, the UAE is one of the more culturally tolerant places uh, in the middle east and uh, as pat said has an active tourist business and uh, so forth but mbz is somebody i think we're going to hear more of in the future and i right. just uh, wanted to say
1: that i think you i think you're right and, you know I th- there's a nickname i think Pat, you guys know better than i do but you know referring to the uae as little sparta <laughs> and, and it's 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 got a military that's probably one of the best for its size in the whole region uh and they have been you know doing things on their own, not necessarily in coordination with others. For example, they, they have an embassy in Damascus and the other kind of golf guys don't have anybody there. So yeah. Yeah. they're they're marching to their own drum.
0: Well, Dick, I, I'm, uh, I'm just hopeful you're not resentful that he took your title of the most powerful man on earth. <laughs> or was that the most interesting man on earth?
1: When I got married, I ceased being the most powerful man on earth. <laughs> right, so.
0: So uh, let's let's wrap up uh, our our UAE Israel uh, conversation and and I think the uh, the bottom line here in terms of uh, U.S. Uh, interest is uh, that uh, the UAE and the Gulf states, uh, along with Israel, form uh, part of uh, uh, the alliance that the United States is is putting together for uh, maximum pressure on the, on Iran. So uh, we can't ignore the uh, the Iranian piece of uh, any arrangement with uh, with our Gulf allies. Um, And just to remind people that uh, the United States had a uh, nuclear agreement called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, which the Trump administration uh, tore up. And uh, in the meantime, um, the State Department has orchestrated a a campaign called Maximum Pressure to get Iran to do uh, 12 specific things dealing with their uh, provocations around the region, their military uh, missile plans, and so forth. Uh, Iran has responded with the maximum resistance campaign. And we've uh, actually exchanged blows, you recall, back in January that we, uh, we killed one of their senior leaders at the Baghdad airport, and they responded with a uh, barrage of surface-to-surface missiles at bases where US uh, forces were, were held. So so we're at odds with Iran and uh, so are our Gulf allies and uh, Israel. So uh, that's where we are on that. Uh, any questions from our, uh, our uh, folks in the audience today? Uh, now's the time. Um, please feel free to, to drop those in there. Uh, Dick or Brett, any last thoughts on uh, UA Israel, uh, Iran, I wanted to make sure that if it's all right, that Dick was aware that the National Security Advisor
2: Robert O'Brien, uh, as part of the announcement of this uh, UAE-Israel coming together, uh, thought it would be perfectly appropriate to nominate President Trump for a Nobel Peace Prize.
0: <laughs> oh, you're, you're, Greg, you're asking for trouble now. <laughs> I yeah. think that's no comments.
1: I have right. I have been watching a lot of other television the last couple of <laughs> nights so uh. um, re-
0: reruns of Law and Order I, I think that's, uh, that's no not I actually it reruns of the White House
1: when the, in the good old days when it was actually functional right
0: so. uh, okay well <laughs> let's uh, let's uh, move on and, and wrap things up here we've we still got the uh, Rick you're you're up and I think you could you have no trouble pronouncing this one.
2: Okay, let me just, uh, I I can't quite read that in the, let me just do something real quick so I can uh, see it. Anyway, the answer to the question, uh, the question was, uh, uh, who was it, the opposition uh, leader in Russia, uh, who was it that uh, was poisoned, allegedly by the Russian government? And the answer is B, Alexei uh, uh, Navalny.
0: All right, Uh, well, thanks for that. And uh, I think that about does it uh, for our return. At a new date and time, Wednesdays at 1 o'clock, we'll be here every week and bring you uh, the unvarnished, no fake news, no spin. Uh, And uh, Ambassador Bowers uh, may comment or have no comment, depending on the uh, (laughs) sensitivity of of the questions or the issues. But we're we're happy to uh, spend time uh, talking about what's going on in the world and uh, dissecting uh, some of these news reports to give you Uh, our assessments and and analysis based on the experiences that we've had in a variety of uh, positions uh, in academia and uh, the military and and government. Uh, Brett, Dick, any last words before we go? All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, It's been uh, a pleasure as always, and we will uh, see you all soon. Everybody be safe, and thanks for watching.